a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'm very happy to welcome Jeffrey Einstein back to the program with me. Um, Jeff, I got to tell you, I, I made a very happy discovery the other day. A friend of mine actually sent me this quote. He sent an image of this quote. And I was like, hey, that's one of Jeff's quotes. <laughs> and I asked you, where did you, where did you encounter uh, Jeff Einstein? And he says, I found him on Substack. And I thought, well, I did too. So I guess uh, anecdotal to be sure, but uh, your, your influence is growing <laughs> and spreading. Thanks very much. Very good to see you again, Brian. Good to see um, you. And, and uh, all I can say about that is you need some more friends. I do. Well, hey, you know, it's people who actually want to question the narrative, though. It's it's a small group and you don't make friends by by questioning mm-hmm. the narrative. So uh, no, it's not the first thing you think of when it comes to making friends and influencing people. That's for sure. Right. You got to go along to get along in, in so many circles. Look, for, for those who are meeting you for the first time, you were a digital pioneer, now turned digital apostate. Would you give us the thumbnail sketch of, of what that means? Well, I was I, I sort of stumbled into the digital world in 1984. I authored the first major book series on personal computers called Einstein's Computer Guides. And later that same year, because I gained some notoriety from the book series, I co-founded the first digital advertising agency in the country. So I was I was early in the space, and I was never that enamored with the with the uh, technology itself, or even for the, the potential of the technology. I was there was more a function of a couple of spare guys with way too much spare time on their hands, and uh, and you know expensive drug habits to support. And that's how I got into it. And I, I remained in it through the dot-com era of the late 1990s. And when I saw what was happening then, and it, start, it started causing me some concern, I started thinking about uh, the digital downsides. And by the turn of the 21st century, I, uh, I observed for the first time that we had sort of entered an era of default uh, addiction. Everybody was a, a media addict at that point. That was uh, the, the default social condition, uh, the rule rather than the exception. And we had sort of turned that corner as a society. And I turned state's witness. That's when I started talking and writing about uh, about the digital downside, most notably this default uh, state-sponsored default uh, addiction to all things media and all things digital. And needless to say, that uh, pretty quickly ended my digital career. Well, I strongly recommend uh, Jeff's uh, quality of life resistance movement. Some great reading there. It will definitely open your eyes. And, and Jeff, I have you here today to talk about one of your essays on the tyranny of victimhood culture. And and this is not just, you know, the, hey, somebody's got a beef with the alphabet gang or something like that. I mean, we're, this victimhood culture is everywhere. In fact, uh, let's let's start one of the more obvious places. Um, I hear there's a bit of a dust-up over there in, uh, you know, Gaza, Israel, Palestine. Talk to me about how victimhood culture plays into that continuing conflict and, and prevents them from ever coming to some kind of negotiated, you know, position. Well, victimhood culture prevents any victim-oppressor 
relationship or perceived victim oppressor relationship from moving forward. It just it just stands in the way. The uh, the problem with the the victimhood mentality is that once you assign it to yourself, or you know, it's bad enough to assign a victimhood mentality or victimhood uh, agency condition to yourself, uh, but it, when you do that to a whole group of people, it becomes you know a crime against humanity because it steals their futures, it steals you know their agency from them. And any ability for them to basically look at themselves or perceive themselves as anything except an oppressed individual or an oppressed group. And once that happens, it just throws up this gigantic roadblock to everything else that could possibly come down the block. That was the genius, uh, regardless of what you think of the Abraham Accords one way or the other. That was the genius of the Abraham Accords was that it sort of left the uh, Palestinian uh, a victimhood mentality at the curb. It didn't include them in the negotiations, and it left those states who participated in the in, in those negotiations to their own devices to uh, to the negotiate in their own enlightened or not so enlightened self interests. In any event, it basically gave agency to both sides to let that happen, and it was a spectacular thing. That happened, and nobody twenty years ago would have ever thought that anything like that could happen in the Middle East. Um, and it happened because the vic victimhood mentality was set aside at the time, and we see it rife throughout society now. It's it's the favorite uh, plaything of the progressive left now, and particularly uh, where you see all the demonstrations going on now in uh, Western democracies, in university, in the in this country, right. specifically, and the university level, uh, which is just steeped in that victimhood mentality. And there's a, just a straight binary, uh, uh, binary association of oppressor versus oppressed uh, in every way, shape, or form, in every form of, of uh, political, of identity politics. Personally, I think it's it's a class war tool that the entire woke agenda is a is a a, a class warfare agenda um, and it, it requires that kind of dynamic that kind of binary in order to carry the narrative and that's one of the reasons why we're seeing the narrative break down right now in the in the current uh, uh, war in the Middle East I, I love the, the explanation and and you point this out in the article about how the 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 really dangerous thing about this victimhood mentality is, first of all, victims are never responsible for their circumstances. So they've just, okay, all responsibility has been taken away from them. And it shifts the blame for your circumstance onto either, as you point out, the oppressor to, or, or, or those who, who aren't actively you know, interceding and, and trying to put the oppressor in his or her place. Yeah. doesn't matter what your behavior is. You are no longer responsible for that as a victim. And I see this, you know, in everything from geopolitics right down to family relationships where, you know, this is my crown. I am a victim and you must do as I say. You must feel bad and then I can control you. Yes, it's a pernicious form of tyranny. It really is because you can't win against it. You can't if you if you try to oppose it, then you're siding with the oppressors. If yes. you say nothing at all, then silence is violence. So there's really no way to 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 win it except to ignore it, to do what they did at the Abraham Accords, which is say, well, 
you know, we're going to ignore this. And if you can't ignore it, is what happened with Hamas lately when they went in and butchered you know, a thousand innocent Israelis and when they when they crossed that particular border, pardon the pun, um, and the Israelis knew they can't ignore it anymore. You know, so then now they have to do something about it. And it's just tragic. It's it's horrible. Yeah. So, and, and a whole and generations of Pal- generations of Palestinians have grown up with this mindset now. And it's it's really, really difficult to deal with and really uh really a shame. It's a horrible thing. I you know all the Palestinians I've met in my life are such great people. <laughs> They're such, you know, such wonderful, wonderful, talented and and energetic people and passionate people and bright, you know, bright beyond stars bright. Um and I just don't uh you know I just wish that there was another way to do this thing. And I and really the whole idea of an invasion of Gaza is just so unsettling for me and it's so it's just so difficult to live with. And then as I lived in Israel for four years and I just the whole thing, everything about it is just tragic. What, what's so disturbing to me, though, is that to express your point of view, you run the risk of somebody on one of the sides getting really bent out of shape because, you know, uh, you know, Jeff, I was checking your avatar. I'm not seeing any nation's flags or I'm not seeing anything that it indicates that you support the current thing. And my point is so many people out there are so easily manipulated. And I mean, into into like where they want to fight just because yeah. someone has a, a differing point of view. By the way, I think your point of view is the most is among the most rational I've heard about, you know, how do you solve a problem like this? It's it's not something that just cropped up overnight. The black and white, one-dimensional version that we're given doesn't begin to cover some of the complexity, but losing the victimhood mentality, at least there people can well, start to to be rational. Yeah, I I think that it has to begin somewhere and and in my and i agree basically you have to drop that victimhood mentality at some point along the line and decide for yourself that this is not how i want to live my life anymore or as a people that this is not how i want to we want to live our lives anymore moving forward this just has to be a better way and the better way is to seize control of your own agency to the extent that you can now there are precious few things in our lives that we can control in the first place one of them is our perception and how we think about ourselves. Can we come back to that in just a moment? We're, we're up against our break. Jeffrey Einstein is my guest. We'll continue our conversation right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. My guest is Jeffrey Einstein. He is, uh, I met him through Substack, through a wonderful uh, Substack page called the Quality of Life Resistance Movement. And not only is Jeff a great writer, I think his solutions are well thought out. And Jeff, to, to your credit, you talk about some serious things, but you managed to do so with a sense of humor. That, that is a rare and precious thing today. So thanks for being able to do what you do. My pleasure. It's by my family, my family legacy at work. Is it? Yeah, there's there's a lot of comedy and a lot of humor in in your family legacy. It sure is. Let's talk yes, about as we were going to break. You were you were starting to to talk about, um, you know, one of the keys is you got to be able to figure out 
where you stand. Not wait for somebody to tell you, but you've got to know who you are. Let's let's delve into that a little bit deeper. All right. I, I think that the best way to, to start that process, and it, it no matter where you stand, if you get caught up in things like what's going on in the world now, and it's easy to get caught up because it's a 24-7 deluge and tsunami of news and fake news and every kind of information, and it's horrible. Well, you know, 99% of it is horrible, and all commercial news is designed to sell you fear and envy. That's all they do is manufacture fear and envy in the in the hope that they can manufacture some level of consent en route for uh, for the horrible narrative that they're trying to spin. So the best thing you can do is is in order to seize control of your own destiny in that regard or your own agency in that regard is first to find ways to turn off the news and walk away from it. Don't get you know, there's no no law yet that says you have to listen to it or you know take a walk, go talk yet. to your kids. You know, well, you know, yeah, exactly right. Yet, um, you know. So the best thing. So one of the best things you can do is find a way to replace these horrible meaning, these uh, mindless rituals that, of of media consumption and in particular twenty four seven news. Um, and replace them with more meaningful rituals like uh, taking a walk or going to the gym or or uh, playing with your kids or whatever it is find something more meaningful to do go to church go to a synagogue whatever it is you know find it's like an inter- intervention with alcoholic with an alcoholic you know you're all all you're doing all all 12 step recovery programs work the same way they simply replace the mindless uh, rituals of your obsessions and addictions with more meaningful rituals. So instead of going to the bar to have a few drinks with your buddy after work, you might you make a program call or you go to a meeting or you do something else and fill that time. You intervene basically and fill that time with a more meaningful ritual. That's the secret to quality of life. It's always you know, it's a balance of me- <coughs> excuse me, meaningful versus mindless rituals. And in our lives, the mindless rituals have won out to a huge extent in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, we, are, we are now a society of addicts, basically, and we behave like it all yep. the time. So the first thing you can do is, is do what you can to reduce the amount of really harmful stuff that you're consuming on with your eyes and with your ears and in your heart and your mind. Last Second last thing. night, for example, my my mom, who's eighty eight years old, um, called to talk with her, see how she was doing, and um, she was like, "Oh, I'm just so tired. I guess I'll just watch the news and then go to bed." And and I could not help but remind her, "Now, mom, remember, they're going to tell you what to be afraid of." And she kind of laughed, like, "What do you mean by that?" But I'm like, "That's that's what the news is for today, is to tell yes. you these are the things you should fear." And maybe that was wrong. Maybe I overstepped my bounds to, to remind her of that. But that is her window on the world. So when she sees the world as a very frightening, scary place, that inf- it's, it's based on what she's consuming as opposed to, you know, actual observations of what's going on. Well, it's frightening and scary enough without having to reinforce that notion 24-7. The average American now consumes 10 to 15 hours of digital media each and every day. Uh, just depending on which report you believe, um, but the the real the the idea in reclaiming your own agency is to localize as much of your life as possible, basically, 
is to get away from the national headlines, to get away from the international headlines and do what you can to focus your attention and your time and your energy and resources on the local elements and people and things around you in your life. And that will go a long way towards you know, retarding that, that tsunami, you know, holding back that tsunami of horrible, terrible, frightening news. Uh, because it's all it's all horrible, terrible, and frightening. It's just you know, it's nothing but. Woody Allen used to say that the world was split up into two kinds of people: the horribles and the miserables. <laughs> Hor- the horribles were people with with terrible deformities or, or 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 conditions, physical conditions or mental conditions, and you would look at them and say, "Gee, I'm glad I'm not that guy." <laughs> and, and the miserables were just the rest of us. <laughs> so we should be thankful that we're just miserable, and not horrible. So in order to to basically turn that corner and to regain some agency that returns us to a mere miserable state <laughs> instead of a horrible state, we should do what we can to localize our our time and, and, and attention and focus because that will do more than anything else. Something else that you point out in your article, and we've got to take a minute to talk about this. It's not enough just to, you know, push back against the woke agenda. Um, I think you offer some very viable ways to, to fight that. But one of the things that I love is you encourage us to embrace and applaud the apostates. What does that mean? The apostates are the people who at personal risk to themselves generally, whether they're religious or social or, or you know, it could be apostates. Apostates are black conservatives. Apostates are conservative gay people or conservative trans people, people who put their social standing, their familial relationships and their careers at times, and possibly more, will put themselves at physical risk sometimes for adopting unorthodox views, views that depart from the current orthodoxy. So my thinking has always been that if you really want to find the truth in the situation, the first guys you should listen to are the apostates because they're the guys with the most skin in the game yep. and the guys with the best reasoned arguments against the orthodoxy. That's why they're apostates because they stand out and they put themselves at risk. Um, so that's the best place to start in my for my money. You don't turn on the news. You don't go to, you know, you find somebody who's, who's, who's taken, uh, who's turned away from the, the beaten path and put themselves at risk. So those are the people I think that have the best reason views. And that, that phrase, skin in the game, I have found that uh, when I want quality, credible um, information or principles, it's the people with skin in the game that, that are going to give oh, yeah. it to me. People who don't that's have skin it. in the game, that's the politicians. No matter what happens, they're safe. Yeah, they're, you know, it doesn't exactly. really matter. But the people exactly who actually right. suffer for their beliefs... I will take them seriously much quicker than I would a news type or a politician. You know, absolutely. If you're going to search out somebody else's opinion, search out somebody who has some skin in the game. Don't uh, the, the politicians are the last ones we should listen to, especially nowadays. Um, and the, the, uh, the people in the media by and large, uh, or at least the, the big media franchises by and large are, have no skin in the game whatsoever. Uh, they're just there no matter what. They collect a paycheck. And, you know, it, it's a horrible state of affairs in the media right now. It's, it's it's a pure addiction apparatus. And that's the only reason it's there, is to make addicts out of everybody. And they've done a good job. but really uh, good job. Yeah. 
But uh, with the help of, of individuals like uh, Jeff Einstein, we are slowly but surely finding our way back. Um, Jeff, again, for the sake of people who haven't visited your Substack, where can they find it? What's, what's the web address? The uh, web address is QOLRM. That's the acronym for Quality of Life Resistance Movement. Substack.com, or they can just go up and uh, search for my, my name, Jeff Einstein. Uh, once you get past Jeffrey Epstein and, uh, and some of my old stuff, you'll find a link to the Quality of Life Resistance Movement. Jeff, great as always to visit with you. Thank you so much for your time. Let's do this again. Likewise, Brian. Thanks very much. You have a great day. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the mounting Middle East conflict. Two, uh, two aircraft carrier groups, I don't know how many other surface ships, but uh, holy cow, the U.S. Navy sure is positioning a lot of assets over there by all of our, you know, military bases in the Middle East, and I don't know, I, I'm being a little bit flip, but holy cow, it sure does seem like we've got uh, we've got something on the menu here, and I'm, I'm thinking that uh, it's going to be larger, regional war, possibly something more. Now, I don't say this with the idea that everybody's like, yeah, good, finally, you know, finally a good conflict in the Middle East. I don't think anybody, at least in America, you know, speaking for, for the average American, is stumping for this, and yet here it is being rolled out in front of us, and really there's, there's not a whole lot we can do. So I wanted to share some thoughts from Doug Casey, one of my favorite analysts, uh, regarding the current Middle Eastern conflict as well as what comes next. That means you're going to have to have a little bit of a historical understanding about what's been taking place here. Now, International Man is the one interviewing Doug Casey. They start with the question of the Middle East is on the precipice of the biggest regional war in generations. And so they ask Doug Casey, what is your take and where is this headed? Now, Doug says people forget that before World War I, when the Ottoman Empire controlled Palestine, there was actually very little ethnic or religious antagonism. Now, there were small numbers of traditional religiously oriented Jews in Palestine, but everyone minded their own business and got along. The problem started with the Aliyahs. Large numbers of European Jews moved to Palestine as an ethnic, ethnic rather, religious rose, homeland, rather, and it resulted in the creation of the State of Israel in 1948. Now, for whatever reason, tightly knit ethnic groups seem to want their own homelands. The Kurds, for instance, are spread among Syria, Turkey, Iraq, and Iran, but don't have an official homeland, and that's a big problem for the future. The Rohingyas, who are currently powerless Muslims and Muslims rather, and generally Buddhist Burma, they have the same problem. Many uh, American Indians throughout the Western Hemisphere have the same growing revanchist feelings. 500 years after the European conquest. So what's happening between the Israelis and the Palestinians, his point is, it's not unique. Before Israel was founded, the Jews were pretty much in the same position as the gypsies, another tightly knit but widely dispersed ethnic group. But at this point, he says Israel is a real country. 
The Jews say this land was ours from way back when God gave it to us, and the Palestinians say, even your own Bible says that you don't have a homeland. Now, Doug says, look, I don't want to get into that. It's insoluble, but more important, it should be irrelevant to outsiders. Okay, here's the part you need to hear. Our main interest is keeping the United States out of this thing. We're 330 million people, about 7.6 million are Jews, 3.6 million are Arab. The rest of us don't want to have anything to do with what amounts to a biblical domestic dispute that could easily turn into World War III. Now, he says, on the one hand, I say a pox on both of your houses because they're fomenting World War III. On the other hand, he says, I wish them both well. It's just none of our business. For the U.S. to take sides is insane and can only make things much, much worse. Again, you can probably see why I'm, I'm leaning towards Doug's analysis here as opposed towards the U.S. State Department. Now, Doug says, I'm friendly toward Israel if only because it represents Western values far more than do the Muslims. But he says, I can't see that it has a rosy future for at least two reasons. One, as Yasser Arafat once said, the Palestinians will win because their most effective weapon is the womb of the Palestinian woman. And he says, demographics are on the side of the Palestinians. Not to mention that the Israelis are outnumbered 100 to 1 by hostile worldwide Muslims. It has to do with the prophet or Allah said in the Quran. Two, Israel has nuclear weapons, as can any Muslim as can any Muslim government that wants to fight them, or that wants them rather. The result will be a knife fight in a phone booth. Okay, that's a little bit daunting. So from here, International Man says, okay, recently two solid anarcho-capitalists, Safadian Amos, who comes from a Palestinian background, and Walter Block, who comes from a Jewish background, debated Israel-Palestine. They actually have a link where you can watch it. Doug has asked, how do you view the Israel-Palestine conflict as an anarcho-capitalist? Is there an ANCAP solution? Now, Doug Casey says, the Block-Amos debate is excellent and it's worth watching. In fact, he says, both of these guys are friends of mine. Walter's been a friend for 40 years. Incidentally, he'd say that Safadian won. Walter, who normally takes justifiable pride in being accurate and logical, is just factually wrong in saying that Palestine belonged to the Jews since biblical times. Groups have been stealing land from one another since day one. How far back should you, do you want to go to establish group ownership? which incidentally doesn't exist. Land should be something that's individually owned. Nobody has a title going back 2,000 plus years, although the Palestinians basically possessed it for perhaps 80% of that time. So again, he says, at this point, I think that's an insoluble problem. You just have to let these people work it out between themselves. It's an unfortunate situation, but there are dozens like it around the world. We don't have a dog in this fight. It's none of our business. Actually, he says the U.S. is the biggest problem in this. As in the Ukraine, the U.S. government is promising to take a regional dispute and turn it into World War III with scores of smoking nuclear-bombed cities across the globe. Now, as far as what's happened so far, it's clear that Hamas is at fault. They launched an unprovoked attack on the Israelis, but it should be treated as a crime, not a causus belli with a military solution. It's very much like 9-11 in the U.S., which also should have been treated as a crime, not a reason to invade some primitive backwaters. Figure out who did it, track down the perpetrators, make them answer for their crime. Punishing a country of millions for the acts of individuals or groups is counterproductive. So invading Gaza, which contains over 2 million Palestinians, will notch the conflict way up. 
Gazans are certainly anti-Jewish, but they didn't commit the crime. Elements of Hamas did. So the Israelis should handle this crime the way they did the 1972 Black September Munich massacre of 11 Israeli athletes. He says the U.S. picking sides guarantees that it will spin out of control. For what it's worth, he says the U.S. almost always picks the wrong side. We did it in Vietnam. Hanoi now passes for a friend. We back criminal groups and regimes in South America and Africa all the time. Getting involved can only impoverish Americans, bankrupt, and slaughter the locals and make lots of new enemies. Now, from here, International Men says, okay, both sides of the conflict are engaged in an aggressive information war, and it's challenging to tell fact from fiction. Doug, you've traveled through much of the Middle East. What insights have you gleaned from this firsthand experience? And how does it contrast with what you see in mainstream media? Now, Doug says it's very clear that the average Jew is anti-Arab and anti-Muslim. That's just a fact for reasons that we don't have to go into here. It's also clear, he says, that the average Muslim is anti-Jew and anti-Israel. That's the way the cards have been dealt. And he says, I don't see how that's going to change for at least two big reasons. One, they both want the same real estate. Two, lots of fanatics on both sides are stirring the pot, but it's not up to us to decide who's right and who's wrong or who's good and who's evil, who owns the land and who doesn't. Again, his point is, it's none of our business. It's not our problem. Taking sides in what amounts to a Hatfield-McCoy-type dispute times several million can only make it much, much worse. Now, International Man says, it's impossible to hear a discussion about the Middle East without the word terrorism coming up. Doug, you've often emphasized the importance of using precise language. What are your thoughts on the use and meaning of the word terrorism? Now, he says, if I ever uh, get into this, if I ever write the fourth Charles Knight book, Terrorist, I'll go into this in some detail. But he says, the fact is, believe it or not, there are over 100 distinct definitions of terrorism out there, mostly put out by various U.S. government agencies. Maybe they can't agree on a definition because it's useful to leave the concept as a floating abstraction to be used when convenient. But he says, I would define terrorism as a tactic of warfare intended to have mainly psychological effects on a civilian population. But he says, remember, terrorism is a tactic of warfare, like artillery barrages, cavalry charges, frontal assaults, and a hundred other tactics. They're all nasty, but properly applied terrorism can often achieve an objective with vastly fewer casualties than the alternatives. Now, he says, Napoleon said quite correctly that in warfare, the psychological is to the physical as three is to one. That's why there's an emphasis on winning or at least changing the hearts and minds of both the enemy's troops and his people. Terror is still one way to do that, and it's typically the lowest cost alternative. The U.S. is currently still a rich company railing against terror because it's mainly a poor man's tactic, but we use it when it suits us. In fact, he says in the last century or so, the U.S. has fought a lot of guerrilla conflicts. But it typically forgets that when you're an outside third party fighting in a guerrilla war in someone else's homeland, you're almost certainly on the wrong side because guerrilla's wars are people's wars. And it's a thin line between a guerrilla war and terrorism. I'm a freedom fighter. You're a rebel. He's a terrorist. We'll come back to Doug Casey's commentary in just a few moments. I think he has a more balanced approach, a less partisan approach, and certainly a less hysterical approach than most when it comes to sizing up this Middle East conflict. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Final segment in today's show. Just want to finish up on this Doug Casey, uh, this this take on Middle Eastern conflict and what comes next. I like Doug's take. By the way, he points out how governments have always used terror. Okay, it's not just the terrorists, but governments use them too. The Assyrians, proto-Middle Easterners, if you will, like to scare their enemies by skinning alive those who resisted. Genghis Khan and Tamerlane purposefully used terror by piling up skulls into pyramids. The Romans purposely committed genocide as a means of warfare or a method of warfare on occasion, reserving crucifixion as a terror punishment. He says, let's not be too sanctimonious about terrorism. Bombing cities, which are by definition full of civilians, is just state terrorism. Tarted up, justified, and rationalized with legalities and rhetoric. So the real, te- the real enemy here, he says, isn't terrorism. It's politics. The real enemies are the institutions of politics and governments themselves. I think that's right on the money. Now, given all that we've discussed today, he's asked, what are the investment implications? Listen to Doug's answer. He says the obvious one is oil. It's unpredictable to what degree the Mohammedans of the world will get together and use the oil weapon. They're fortunate that most of our oil is under their sand. Now, he says, I'm fundamentally bullish on oil for many reasons, not germane to this discussion. Oil has limited downside and could easily go way, way up from here for political reasons. It's the most political of commodities, at least right now. The second most political of commodities is gold. Now, he says, gold, as I've been saying for years, has been and still is reasonably priced relative to everything else. But from here, it can only go up. Last, he says, let me point out that mining stocks are inordinately cheap. It's a crappy 19th century choo-choo train business that no one likes these days. But that's great for us as speculators. He says, miners are about as cheap as they've ever been. Ever. Either in absolute or relative terms, much cheaper than they should be relative to gold. So he says, I expect we'll be well rewarded even as the Greater Depression deepens. Again, this is from an international man interview with Doug Casey. I'll have a link in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Okay, two other quick articles that I want to touch on. Um, One is Defending Free Markets. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education. This is the article of the day. Doug McCullough explains why markets are better than mob rule. It's pretty easy, by the way, because in a nutshell, markets operate on a voluntary basis. Nobody tells you when you walk into the store, you have to buy that pair of shoes in that color. That's your choice. And if you go into a store and say, well, you don't really have what I'm looking for, you're free to turn around and walk out. Nobody with a gun can coerce you. No, 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 get back in there and you spend that money. They have to persuade you. That is the beauty of the free market. Unfortunately, we get government involved and what started out as a free choice becomes more and more coerced as time goes on. Now, there's one other article I wanted to touch on. This is a great one from uh, Wired online, or sorry, spiked online. It's the uh, Fall of Scientific American, a once objective magazine that now regularly panders to trans activist pseudoscience. This is from James Esses, who says, when you come across the longstanding magazine Scientific American, you could be forgiven for assuming that scientific truth would play a pivotal role in its output, but not anymore, it seems. Scientific American, founded in 1845, is the oldest continuously published magazine in the United States. That is pretty prestigious, right? 
It has previously featured work by Albert Einstein, among others. However, in recent years, it appears to have been taken over by contributors who now consider themselves activists first and scientists, scientists second. The magazine's ethos now includes the express aim of sharing trustworthy knowledge, enhancing our understanding of the world, and advancing social justice. Their words. And in this case, uh, James S. says it's also uh, started to intervene in electoral politics, too. Back in 2020, Scientific American broke with a 175-year history of nonpartisanship to endorse Joe Biden in the U.S. presidential election. Worst of all, though, he says, when its articles touch on questions of gender and biological sex, Scientific American seems to have abandoned objective facts entirely in favor of trans activist pseudoscience. In an article by Simone DeSun, who identifies as a transgender non-binary woman, Simone tells us to stop using phony science to justify transphobia. Now, the piece is, as you might expect, filled with ideologically driven language and easily disprovable claims. For instance, it asserts that sex is assigned at birth. When it is not, it is observed and recorded. It also suggests that scientific endeavor is quantifiably better when it is more inclusive. But what if being inclusive requires us to deny the reality of biological sex? That would surely put inclusivity at odds with science. And a patronizing, finger-wagging tone runs throughout, too. At one point, readers are told, hold on to your parts, whatever they may be. It's time for the talk. Now, unironically, the article undermines its own premise within the first few paragraphs as it walks readers through the clear biological differences between males and females, ranging from chromosomes to sexual characteristics to brain development. And at the end of the article, having done nothing to challenge the status quo of human biology, we are told the science is clear and conclusive. Sex is not binary. Transgender people are real. Now, of course, nobody has ever claimed transgender people in quotation marks, are a figment of our imaginations. What gender-critical feminists have argued, however, is that sex is both binary and immutable, and that feeling uneasy about one's sex is a symptom of mental illness rather than proof of an innate gender identity that is at odds with one's body. And now for its upcoming November issue, Scientific American has published another piece denying biological reality. And again, this article's peppered with ideological claims purporting to be scientific facts. Before getting into the evidence, writes Kara Ockebach and Sarah Lacey, we first need to talk about sex and gender. Gender refers to how an individual identifies, man, woman, non-binary, and so forth. This statement alone renders the rest of the article completely meaningless. As any time the authors discuss the physiology of a woman, they could actually be talking about a man who identifies as a woman and vice versa. But most egregious are the article's attempts to disprove the known fact that males have inherent physiological uh, advantages over females when it comes to sports and athletics. The The trouble is the examples it chooses do nothing of the sort. For instance, we're told that estrogen can help with certain types of physical activity, although that was never in doubt. Akabak and Lacey give the example of Sophie Power, who in 2018 ran the 105-mile ultra-trail du Mont Blanc while breastfeeding her baby at rest stations. Now, this was undoubtedly an impressive feat, but it does nothing to refute the fact that males have certain inherent advantages when it comes to elite athletics. 
Raiders are then told that the inequity between male and female athletes is a result of not inherent biological differences between the sexes, but of biases in how they're treated in sport. Yet the only example provided to support this wild claim is a completely misleading one. The article points out that male pace setters are not permitted in many women's running events, which apparently ends up holding women back. But in truth, male pace setters are banned for precisely the same reason that men and women tend to compete in separate competitions. It's an acknowledgement of the observable performance differences between males and females. So contrary to what Scientific American would have you believe, there is no debate among serious scientists about the reality of biological sex. Sex is binary. Men really do have inherent and significant significant physiological advantages over women when it comes to sports and athletics. And these include their height, muscle mass, hand size, lung capacity, upper body strength, and bone density. James Esses says the thought, the, the greatest irony, rather, of, of all, is that by downplaying the physiological differences between men and women, Scientific American is actively hampering the pursuit of equality. For all its claims to strive for social justice, it's paving the way for the destruction of women's sports by mediocre men. The denial of biological reality is bad news for science and for social justice, too, so says James Esses, co-founder of Thoughtful Therapists. I guess what this means for you and me is you're going to have to get out there and sort things out for yourself as far as what is true and what isn't. I know it seems daunting, and none of us has enough time to, to suss all these things out and, you know, cross every T, dot every I, make sure that everything checks out. But um, get used to hearing this. If you are serious about truth, you are going to have to become a hunter and gatherer of truth. Now, that doesn't mean that you got to spend every minute on the Internet obsessing over the latest article here or, you know, the latest issue. A lot of this stuff is transitory. You remember that word ephemera that we learned here a few months ago? The great ephemera machine making us care about lots of little petty details that really don't matter in the long run. Things that are very transitory, come and go. Okay, we got to be able to figure out what matters versus what doesn't. That starts with building your mind, learning to claim, use, and defend your rights. That's all it takes. This is The Brian Hyde Show.